0: All right, well, good morning to you. Good morning. I hope you are glad. Hey, good crowd. Lights came up. I could see you guys. What a wonderful day it is to be in the house of the Lord, and we're very excited that you are here today. To our regular attenders, thank you so much for coming, and to those of you who chose to come and not regular here, you might be first time in a while in a church, and you're going, well, it's the eclipse thing. Might as well go to church. Just see what's going to happen. So we are glad that each one of you are here, and of course, you've heard a lot about the eclipse, and of course, it's happening tomorrow, and we're going to kind of talk about that a little bit today, talk about Around that today in a different perspective and and by the way you know it's Danny Evans asked a question this morning to me I was coming in the building and I said you know your animals gonna be infected by impacted by the eclipse or your crops he said well the animals might be like the chickens may go to roost and things like that but here's what he said he said you know have you ever thought about this what did the people like 150 years ago think When an eclipse happened, what did they think when an eclipse happened? 150 years ago, no television, no internet, no radio, no one was broadcasting predicting and saying, hey, there's going to be an eclipse. Can you imagine with no foreknowledge of that, and all of a sudden one day, it starts getting dark in the middle of the day? And he said, what do you think they thought? I said, they thought it was the end of the world. They thought it was the end of the world. And by the way, I think there are some folks who think that maybe this is the end of the world. Uh, I, I don't think that's going to happen. But we'll wait and see tomorrow about 1.20 in the afternoon. So anyway, so tomorrow what's going to happen? Again, we happen to be in the path of totality, which means that the earth, the moon's shadow is going to cross right over our area. It starts up in Oregon and goes down through and across the Midwest and then through Carbondale and out through South Carolina. And totality means that the entire sun is... It's going to be blotted out, and we will experience the moon's full shadow, and it really is going to literally become night in the middle of the day. Now, you may be wondering, how is it that a great big sun can be blotted out by something that is relatively small? Uh, I did a little research, and of course, this would represent the sun. And this would represent the moon. Have you ever noticed, by the way, that like, well, the other day, matter of fact, what two weeks ago, I was walking real early in the morning. And when I got up and, you know, it's the full moon. And when I got up and started walking over in the western sky was a full moon. And it was setting. And just a few minutes later, I'm out by muddy somewhere walking. And I look over my shoulder. It was getting daylight. And there was the sun rising beautifully. So on this side, you know, in the eastern sky, I had the sun, and on this side I had the moon setting, the sun rising, and it was spectacular. And then I said to myself, you know, God, you are so magnificent in your creation. You're just wonderful. But here's the doggling thing is that when I looked at the sun, of course, in that early in the morning, you can see the sun without damaging your eyes, and I'm looking, and then I look over here, and the sun and the moon are the same size. And I'm going, how is that possible? Because if you know anything about science, and I'm sure you already know this, but you know this would represent the sun and this would represent the moon. And really, the moon is 400 times smaller than the sun. So the sun, put the other way, is 400 times bigger than the moon. That's a lot. And so you might ask the question then, you say, well, how is it that something that is so small can about out something that is so big? Well, it just so happens, by the way, that the sun is 400 times further away from the earth. And that changes the perspective. Now, I made a little video to kind of explain it to you and let you see um, how that all works out and how it plays a little role in our lives. So go ahead and play that video. So tomorrow, about 1.20 in the afternoon, something incredible is going to happen. Happen. Something that is very small, the moon, is going to totally blot out something that is much, much larger, and that is the sun. So you've got to ask the question, how is that possible? How is that going to happen? And it's all just a matter of perspective. Now, let's let the red soccer ball up there represent the sun. Then we're going to take the smaller baseball and bring it in. In perspective to the sun. So here we have a much larger object and of course the baseball being much smaller. Now look what happens when I change the perspective by bringing the baseball closer to me. So watch now, here we go. We bring it closer to us and closer and closer and closer and all of a sudden, the baseball totally blocks out the soccer ball. Watch, we're gonna go back other way and we see the soccer ball again. seems much larger. Bring it towards us again. It blocks out the soccer ball coming back, and then it looks small again. And that's exactly what's going to happen tomorrow. If this represents the moon, it's going to slide over in front of the the sun, and because of perspective, it's going to totally blot out uh, the sun. Now, all that is because of perspective. You see, the moon is much closer to us than the sun, because it's closer, it seems larger. And that is how something that is smaller can blot out something that is much larger. And that's exactly right. And that's exactly what's going to happen tomorrow. The moon being 400 times closer to us than the sun has the ability to totally blot out something that's much brighter. Now, that's a, that's a phenomenon. I mean, hey, did you know I was watching earlier this morning, I was watching Weather Channel, and there was... Oh, the guy from the Weather Channel, Jim Cantore, and the Wolf guy. I can't remember his name. Wolf Reynolds. And they're in Carbondale, like broadcasting from Saluki Stadium. I'm going, how cool is that? Because, again, you know, Carbondale is one of the epicenters of totality in the whole country. and Here's the Weather Channel right here within 40 miles of our church. How cool is that? So that's a phenomenal thing, and that's great, and that's wonderful. But what I want to talk about today is something really, really much more important than that, yet it deals with perspective. So the bottom line is this: How can something that is seemingly small in our lives totally blot out a big, big God? I mean, most of us here today that know anything about God would say, "Yeah, God's really big." Well, how is it then that some things that come in our lives—it might be, you know, a possession; it could be circumstances; it could be anything; it uh, could be people. You know, how is it that something that is relatively small can totally blot out? a big, big God in our lives. And again, just like the baseball, when it was further away from us, we had the right perspective. The soccer ball looked larger and the baseball looked smaller. But when that ball came toward us, of course, the baseball looked larger. So it is with things, so it is with circumstances, so it is with things in our lives, that the closer we allow other things to come between us and God, the bigger those things seem and they can totally blot out an incredible God. And that. That's what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about a young man um, who and again, it's a familiar story in the Bible, Mark chapter 10. It's a, it's a familiar story, but a young man who comes to Jesus and wanting to know how he can get eternal life. He wanted to know how he could enter the kingdom. And it has a really interesting twist. I'll go ahead and tell you at the end of the story, it doesn't end like you think it would end. But also this, a lot of us have already made that decision, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower, how does this apply to me? Well, without twisting the scripture, and we don't want to do that, of course, but also, did you know the same things that can blot out God in the lives of a lost person, keep them from seeing God, keep them from entering the kingdom of God? Did you know those same things can keep us from enjoying the kingdom of God? You know, the old catechism from way back when before us, you know, said this. The the principal aim of man is to know God and to enjoy him forever. To know God and to enjoy him forever. So why is it so many Christians go through life? And can we be candid? They're not very joyful. They're not very joyful. And it just might be that just the same things, the same things that will keep a person from not seeing God to enter the kingdom of heaven, Maybe blotting our joy out. It's blocking God, and we're not enjoying the kingdom. So let's jump in to Mark chapter 10, verse number 17, and let's follow this man. So hang on with the part about enjoyment. We're going to get there in a little bit, but it starts out with this young man running up to Jesus. And it's Mark chapter 10, verse number 17. So, as he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up. Now, this is, again, if you're a Bible person, I know you get this already. But in case you're here, maybe listen on the radio, and you don't know the story, this man that comes to Jesus, there are about three things that the Bible tells us about in the different translations. One, he was young. Two, he was a ruler of the synagogue. In other words, he was a very religious person. But three, he was rich. He was wealthy. So he was young. Okay, He was a ruler and he was rich. And that set him up pretty good in that atmosphere and that culture. He would have been looked up to and he would have been respected. And of course, that really sets up because... Men in general didn't run anywhere. That was very undignified. But to see a a wealthy, ruler, rich person running anywhere was very unusual. Well, this guy runs up to Jesus, and he kneels down before him, and he asks him a question. It's a really good question. Now, in this translation, which I think is the Holman Christian Standard Bible, it's ten English words. But in this ten English words, there are three things that are really important. Look what it says. It says in in verse number 17, continuing, Good teacher, that's the first thing. Good teacher, what must I do? That's the second thing. To inherit eternal life, that's the third thing. Three different things. You know, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see... We're not sure about something, and that is, why did this guy call Jesus good? Now, you need to understand in that culture, I mean, we use good like everywhere. We throw good around. Good pizza, good food, good good performance, good car. We use the word good very freely around here. But in that culture, good was reserved only for God. Nothing was good besides God. So you didn't walk up and say, that was a good meal, honey, because that word was reserved for God. So when the guy runs up to Jesus and says, good teacher, you've got to try to figure out, was he A, just flattering Jesus, or B, was he actually saying, you're somebody different than all the rest? Was he trying to ascribe in the best way he could an attribute to Jesus that you are God, which would have been a right right perspective, okay? We're just not sure why he said good teacher, but he did. And then he says, what must I do? And boy, is that the question of the century. What must I do? It's a general assumption among people that we have to do something to go to heaven, And by the way, I don't mean do something like we see Jesus. We're a performance-driven world. And we figure out that that if we're going to please God, we've got to do something. We've got to perform. We we have to do good works. We have to give. We have to go to church. We have to clean up our act. We have to quit this and start that. We're a do-do-do-oriented world. If God's going to accept us, then there's something we have to do. And certainly the Jewish culture was that way. They had slowly generated into a do culture that said, if God is going to accept us, we've got to do. principal thing being the law. So what must I do? And then we got this and to inherit eternal life. So here's a guy, remember, who had it all together. He was young and he was a ruler and he was rich. He had it all together, but he knew something was missing. I ask you today. Your, your life is pretty good. You're, you're 35 or 40 years old. You've already exceeded your mother's expectations. Okay? If you married somebody's daughter, your father-in-law is finally saying, well, maybe it wasn't such a bad choice after all. Okay? So, so already it's kind of coming together. But at the, in your inkling, you know, you've got the car, you've got the house, you've got the job, you've got the title, you've got the degree. But there seems to be something missing. Or maybe... Without, again, twisting the scriptures, maybe you did the Jesus thing and you've been going to church now for about a year or two years or five years. You've been in this Jesus thing and boy, you used to wake up in the morning and go, oh, I just can't wait to go to church today. It's an amazing thing. I just can't. And all of a sudden you find yourself about four years in the journey going, church again, huh? Gosh, it's amazing how fast those Sundays roll around. We preachers think that every once in a while too. Don't, don't worry about that. So, maybe there's something there, and, and you're kind of wondering, you know, what's going on? Where's the joy that used to be there? What's happened? Well, Jesus asked him a question Why do you call me good? And Jesus asked him, No one is good but one, and that's God. You know, sometimes I get thoughts, and I don't know where this one came from, but boy, I said, Oh, my goodness. You know it's kind of like Jesus is talking about wacky worship, wacky worship. you know, I think he's addressing opposite issue you know are are you are you flattering me? Are you just here to try to get my attention? Are you here to flatter me? Are you genuinely ascribing a an attribute to me um, that I am worthy of? Why do you call me good? There's only one, and that's that's God, and we're not just Take a moment and make sure you understand wacky worship. Because when we gather here, or we gather under the steeple, when we do our God thing, are we just trying to flatter Jesus? We like flattering him, or are we really trying to ascribe the adoration that he deserves? That's a good question. It's a good question. It's not enough to get in a room like this or a room over there or whether you use the little white book or whether you use the screen or whether you have the drums or no drums. It's not just enough to go through those things. Your heart is what matters. And there can be wacky worship. Sometimes worship makes us feel good. And, you know, we ascribe this, Oh, Jesus, we flatter you, we flatter you. Listen, Jesus doesn't want to be flattered. He wants to be adored. Jesus does not want to be uh, wacky worshiped. He wants to be adored. So Jesus asks the guy the question. and says, hey, so why are you calling me good? And then Jesus does something kind of strange, kind of weird. He, he, he answers a due question with a due answer. A due question with a due answer. Here's what he says in verse 19. Well, you know the commandments. Um, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And you're kind of going, wait a minute, Jesus haven't you read what Paul said? Well, Paul hadn't written it yet. But the bottom line is, you know, all about grace and not about works. And Jesus, you've got it mixed up here. You're going to mess up Paul's theology. No, not at all. See, because, because we need to understand the purpose of the law. What is Jesus doing here? You've got to remember, he's trying to help the guy to get this small thing out of his life so he can see the big thing. He's trying to clear the pathway so this man can see that he can have a relationship with a great big God. And so to help us understand that, uh, I've got Romans chapter 5, verse number 20 on cue here. Listen to these words. And I'm going to use a translation that I don't don't ordinarily use. It's a good translation, uh, the New Living Translation. But it really lays it out there for we can grab it. So... Jesus gives us due answer, and to understand that due answer, we need to understand why God gave us the law. One reason he gave us the law was this. Listen, it just lays out there right there for us. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. One of the major purposes of the law is to show us our sin. Listen, listen, listen. You need to hear this. The law was never a pathway to God. The law was never a pathway to God. Religion is not a pathway to God. Getting baptized is not a pathway to God. Giving money is not a path- pathway to God. Being a good boy or a good girl is not a pathway to God. The law and keeping the law was never a pathway to God. Paul lays it out clearly in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. And then it gets amazing. And then it gets amazing. He goes on and says this. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So as our sin was revealed, God's grace just got bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, I'm really convinced... That the more we can come to terms with our sin, the more we appreciate God's grace. We just have this real tendency to tell God how good we think we are. When we can can come to terms with our sin and understand that as sin abounds, God's grace is greater and abounds even more. Now keep in mind, this is exactly what Jesus is trying to get the guy to see. He goes on, verse number 21, Paul does, and goes on and says this. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death... That's where the young man is, the ruler is. You know, he's spiritually dead, all right? Sin is abounding. He says, so God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us a right standing with God, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is where the rich young ruler is, okay? I need to keep the rules. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And Jesus wants to get over here and say, you need to experience God's grace. And some of you are here today. If I could just appease God. If I could just make God happy. Some of you Christians are there. You're a Christ follower, yet you still got to in your brain. If I could just make God happy. If I could just appease God. You just need to live in a world of grace. And understand that you don't have to appease God. Jesus Christ already did that. So, back in Mark chapter 10... The setup is there, okay? You keep these rules, all right? You know what the law says for the purpose of showing him his sin. The desired response is, oh, Jesus, I know now I could never keep these rules. If I'm going to have eternal life, I need something more. What is it? That's what Jesus wanted the young man to say. That's not what he got. What he got was, verse 20, he said to him, Jesus, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. The exact opposite response. You know the rules. Instead of saying I could never keep the rules, he goes, I've kept all of them. Sometimes we get that. You know, I'm telling you, I am certain there are Christians and they say and they pray, God, aren't you glad? God, aren't you glad that you saved me? Aren't you glad that I'm on your team? Aren't you glad you've got my money? Aren't you glad you've got my talents? Aren't you glad you got me? Well, God may be glad he got you, but it's not because of your money or your talents or your abilities. He's glad he got you because he loves you. He loves you. Well, Jesus decided that emergency surgery was necessary. You know, every once in a while we got a phone call not too long ago, a young lady, her appendix ruptured, and it was in an the evening, and they had to do emergency surgery. We got a call on um, Tuesday or Monday night um, from Ken Erickson. You know, hey, we're going to surgery right now. We gotta fix your colon. We've got to go to surgery. Sometimes drastic action is necessary. And so Jesus sees if there's going to be hope for this man seeing the truth, you know, drastic action is going to be necessary. Now, I'll tell you this right now. Tomorrow, if you don't have any of those little glasses, don't look at the sun. Because it's going to damage your eyes. Okay? You know, it takes drastic measures to protect your eyes tomorrow. And you've got to have those glasses that I put on a pair already, and everything's black. I'm going, I hope I can see better tomorrow when the eclipse happens because I can't see a thing now. You have to take drastic action to protect your eyes. So, Jesus understands if there's any hope for this young man, okay, then we're going to have to do something drastic. And Jesus was the master of drastic. Now, if you don't know this story, that's okay. You know, one day Jesus was sitting at a well. Okay, and this woman walks up and he says, Hey, get me some water. And the woman says, I can't believe you are a Jew or talking to me, a yes, Samaritan woman, and asking for water. And they have this conversation back and forth about I'm the living water and all this. And so finally, Jesus plays the drastic card. He says to this woman, Go and get your husband. And she goes, I have no husband. And he goes, uh, You're right. You've had five husbands. And in fact, the person you're living with right now is not your husband. Now, Jesus never read that book about how to win friends and influence people. You know, and he would have failed every evangelism course there was because that's not what you do when you're trying to tell someone they need to trust Jesus. But it was drastic action. He had to help that woman to see that she needed him. Well, here we are now, and Jesus rise. he loves this guy. We read that. He loves this guy, and drastic action is necessary. So here's what he does. In verse number 21, looking at him, Jesus loved him. I love that part. Mark is the only one to record this. Three other Gospels had this thing, but Mark is the only one that throws this in. He loved him. Oh, my goodness. You know, Teresa's song, while he was on the cross, and I love the way she ended it, we were on his mind. That whole cross thing, this this whole thing was about God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This whole thing was about God's love. And more than anything, Jesus wants this person at this moment to get the obstacles out of the way, to clear up his perspective and see his need for an awesome God and relationship with that awesome God. And so he takes drastic measures. He loves him and says to him, Okay, you lack one thing. There's something missing in your life. I want you to um, go. I want you to sell everything that you have. And I want you to give it to the poor. And then you're going to have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Can I read that again? I, want, I really want you to get this. So, so Jesus says this person, you lack one thing. Go and sell all you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Now, you understand, for a guy who was young, he had his wealth attained early. He is a ruler. He's a religious man, a very religious man. And he's got a lot of stuff. He's got a lot of stuff. And so Jesus says, I want you to get rid of the stuff. Then the proceeds from that, I want you to give that away. And then I want you to come and follow me. That was like absolutely drastic. Now, the question however is, why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus do that? I mean, is Jesus telling all of us that we're all in deep sin because we have cars and houses and, and flat screen TVs and stuff? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The whole point of this was Jesus knew there was drastic need for this young man to get the obstacles out of the way. And it applies to him. But the principle applies to all of us. We know this now. Looking back, we know this. This man had a God. And it wasn't Jehovah, Yahweh God. It was his wealth. And Jesus is telling him, if you want to inherit eternal life, okay, other gods have got to go. If you want to inherit eternal life, other gods have to go. This was, a, this was like a revelation to me like two years ago. Because I always told people, God wants to be first in your life. God wants to be first in your life. God wants to be first in your life. And it kind of paints a picture of a line. And we, we misconceived the idea is that as long as God is here first, Virginia, okay, here's God. He doesn't care if there's a bunch of other gods lined up behind him in our lives. See, God doesn't want to be first in your life. He wants to be the only. God doesn't want to be first in your life. He wants to be the only. Let me illustrate this way. And you can really identify with this. So I go home from church today. And I say to my wife, Judy, 41 years. I say to Judy, hey, Judy. Judy. I've got good news, and I've got bad news. The bad news is, I have three other girlfriends on the side. Yeah, that's not good. If you're listening on the radio, this is an illustration. So, <laughs> so, so anyway, so I go and I tell you, I said, really bad news is, I've got three girlfriends on the side. The really good news is, is that you're number one. You're number one. Yeah, listen, listen, there's a line. Let, shoot, let's make it really good. I don't have... Two other, three other girlfriends. I've got a dozen, okay? But Judy, don't worry because, see, you're number one. And they're just, well, you know. You think she's going to buy that? Uh, that would be a no. Y'all would have to go see her in jail because she's shooting this preacher. All right, I'm, I'm going down. I'm going down. Listen, God's the same way. God doesn't say, hey, as long as I'm first in line with all your other gods, I'm all right with that. He's not all right with that. And if you're here today and you're here discovering, you know, about Jesus, God loves you and showed it through the cross. And you're here, you know, and I've already told you, you don't need religion. You don't need baptism. You need to trust Jesus. You're getting all of that. You need to understand something. Before you can inherit eternal life, before you can be born again, before you can have your sins forgiven, before you can come a relationship to this great God that we love so much, other gods have got to go. If you're not willing to sign out you know, have a God garage sale and put all the other gods on the chopping block and get rid of them, you're not ready to be saved. I'm just going to be candid with you. I mean, you've got to be willing to get rid of your other gods. And do you know that's true for enjoying your Christianity? It's not any different. You know, every person here who trusted Jesus hopefully said to God, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I've sinned against you. And and I believe Jesus died for me. So I'm turning from my sin. And I want to follow Jesus because that's what I want to do. I want to follow Jesus. Well, it's awfully easy. Even though we have a God garage sale, it's awful easy to go to somebody else's yard sale and start buying God's. Somewhere down the Christian journey, it's easy to get other God's back. And if it's not careful, we'll have a God closet before long. And I'll just tell you this one, you can't enter the kingdom until you come to grips with God's got to be the only God in your life. And if you did that and somewhere along the journey you started amassing other gods, you can enjoy the kingdom. I'm telling you, there's too many Christians walk around and they're not very happy, they're not very joyful. And sometimes the reason why is they've gone to the store or somebody's garage sale and got them some gods. So you just need to hear it up front and personal that God says, I don't want to be number one. I want to be the only God in your life. I don't want your wife to be a God. I don't want your children to be a God. I don't want your religion to be a God. I don't want your church to be a God. I don't want your job to be a God. I don't want your title to be a God. I don't want your Maserati to be a God. I don't want your Mustang to be a God. I don't want your address to be a God. I don't want your labels to be a God. I want to be the only one. Now, I know that sounds a little dramatic. But you've got to remember what the guy asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Big deal. Big deal. Hanging in the balance here is eternity. It's a big deal. So he tells this guy, You've got something that needs to go. It's your money. In his case, it was money, it was keeping him from entering the kingdom. I ask you the question, if you're here today and you've never entered the kingdom, what is that's keeping you from coming in a relationship with God? And frankly, if you're a Christ follower today, what is it that's keeping you from enjoying the kingdom of God? What have you lost perspective on? What have you taken that is so close to you it totally blots out Jehovah God? What have you placed in front of you that no longer you can see God because of this. Whatever it is, whether it pertains, pertains to the entrance of the kingdom or enjoying the kingdom, this needs to go. This needs to go. So, he goes on in Mark chapter 10 verse 22 and says this. So, he was, I love this. Again, I love this translation. He was stunned. The man was stunned at this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. You know what's really weird, like two commentaries said this. This is the only person ever to come to Jesus and left worse off than when he came. The only person recorded in scripture that came to Jesus and left worse off than he came. He was stunned and he left grieving. Why? Because he had many possessions. Now, in his mind's eye, what he did, what happened was this. This is eternal life. This is God. And his, from his perspective, now, from his perspective, money was more important than this. Money was more important than this. So from perspective wise, what is it in our lives, in your life, that's worth it? that's worth blotting out eternal life in heaven? What is it, Christian, in your life that's worth missing the joy for? And the question is, will you walk away or will you deal with the issue? Will you walk away or deal with the issue? The guy walked away and he was like devastated. He was like devastated. So so Jesus looks around, verse 23, Jesus looks around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now keep it in mind that again, the Jewish culture believed that if you had wealth, you were blessed of God. There was only one reason you had money and that's because God blessed you. Okay? And so when Jesus says, hey, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven, the disciples are going, what? That makes no sense whatsoever. So again, the question, what is it in your life that will keep you from entering the kingdom of heaven? What is it that that God would say that has to go in order for you to enter the kingdom? And are you willing to give that up? Christian, what is in your life that's keeping you from enjoying the kingdom of God? And are you willing to let that go? Well, again, in Song of Solomon, I love this verse. In the Song of Solomon 215, you know, it's the only verse I can read in the Song of Solomon without blushing. If you haven't read the Song of Solomon, you need to. I'm not going to preach from it, but you can read it. Song of Solomon 215. It's a great love story. Catch us the foxes, the little foxes, that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. Now here's the deal. Christians hear me. Hear me. Christians hear me. You know. The Song of Solomon is saying that there's a vineyard. And on that vineyard, are tender, ripe grapes. And the little foxes would come in and they would get under the vine and eat the grapes. Okay? And the answer was, the the solution was, catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines. So again, it's not the big things in life that often keep us from being intimate with God. It's the little things. It's the little things. So Solomon wrote in Proverbs 4.23, Guard your heart above all else because out of it come the issues of life. The small things that we let creep in between us and God. Obscure God. Obscure Him where we can't see Him. Guard your heart. Above all else, because out of it come the issues of life. And then Jesus later said in the book of Matthew, Jesus said this, that our heart is a treasure chaser. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's a, national, a natural tendency for our heart to follow our treasure. This is the treasure, and our heart will follow it. Our heart is a treasure chaser. And when our heart starts chasing other things, we totally lose focus on God. And the answer always is, we've got to get our perspective back. Whatever is blocking has to be removed. Fortunately, tomorrow at one twenty, that's going to last about a minute and 20, 40 seconds, somewhere in there. Uh, the time of totality will be about a minute and 40 seconds. And then the, the moon will start moving off of the sun. And the sun's going to return. The answer to darkness is the return of light. In our case, the answer to the darkness is return of the light. And the way we return the light is, is we get rid of the object that's come between us and God. Does that make sense? Is that make sense? So finally, and we're done with this, in Mark chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. So the disciples were astonished at his words. So Jesus is two for two. He told the young, rich young ruler, you know, this stuff's got to go. And he was like blown out of the water. And now when Jesus says that it's so hard for a rich person they're in the kingdom because he wants to worship money. Okay, now there's anything wrong with wealth. Wealth is a tool. Okay but it's so hard to not worship it. You know, the the disciples were like blown away. They were astonished at his words. So Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is, listen, I want you to get this, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you all know what an oxymoron is? An oxymoron is two terms that seem to be opposites that complement one another. Okay, seem to be opposite. The one I want to use today is this. It's simply hard. Simply hard. To enter the kingdom is simply hard. It's simple because all that's required is trusting in the man on the cross and turning from our sin. There's no performance standard. There's no, if you can go to church 52 weeks in a row, you're in. Okay, trust what the man on the cross did Turn from our sins and follow him. But it's hard in that he'll have no other gods before us. Jesus said, if you're going to follow after me, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It's simply hard. Now listen. Enjoying your salvation is the same way. It's simply hard. Simply hard. It's simple in the sense to enjoy your salvation. Keep the other gods out. Keep the other gods out. It's hard because those gods are so attractive. Those gods are so attractive. So it's hard in that sense. But it's really simple. So it's hard. He says in general terms, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then he says these words. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now again, trust, my, trust your pastor on this one, okay? This is literal. Some commentaries say, well, there was this gate in Jerusalem, it was called the camel gate and Jesus is saying it was low and the camel had to get on its knees and crawl through on his knees. There is no indication of that in scripture. Jesus is saying it would be easier to cram a full grown camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. And the key there is not that riches are bad, but that riches hang on to us. You can really say it this way. Again, without twisting scripture, we could say this. It's so hard for a rich man, for a proud, proud man, for a covetous man, for a lying man to get to heaven, unless that is covered by the blood. There's no way. There's no way. Outside of God's grace, you can't get to heaven. You can't cram a, a camel through the eye of a needle and you can't make it to heaven without God's grace. And you know what? You can enjoy your salvation without God's grace. It's so stinking easy to get back in that performance mode. I've got to peace God. I've got to peace God. i got to keep the rules, keep the rules, keep the rules. Because if I don't keep the rules, God won't like me anymore. You can't be my BFF can't be my BFF, God. God says, you you can't be my BFF. Enjoy grace. Grace saves you and grace is the pathway to your joy. And a big step to that is this, perspective. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I'm trying not to use religious terms. But the bottom line is if you're here today and you're separated from God and you're separated because you know like everyone the Bible says everybody has sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous no not one. In God's eyes we all miss the mark. And that's you. That's you today. It's all of us. It was all of us. If you're there God says okay here's the deal. If you'll believe in what my son Jesus Christ did I will forgive your sins. I will give you eternal life. Turn from your sins and follow Jesus. That's simple. We we don't like that because it's so simple. But it's the simple truth. It's the simple truth. So if you're here today and that's never happened in your life, Brother Brent's going to be standing out front in just a minute. And uh, we would love to tell you about this. And you don't want to miss one. You know, everybody keeps saying, oh, you don't want to miss the eclipse. You don't want to miss the eclipse. You don't want to miss the eclipse. You don't want to miss Jesus. If you miss the eclipse tomorrow, if it's cloudy, wait seven years and you can do it again. It's kind of weird it happens that close together, but, but, but yeah, it's going to. Don't miss Jesus today. Don't, don't, don't let your confusion over religion and the failures of people that you know who say they're Christians. And you say, well, they say they're Christians and they mess up all the time. They say all the time. They tell me how bad I am, but they mess up. Don't let that keep you from Jesus today. And my brothers and sisters, you know, God called us to joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And over in Psalm 51, I've been using these verses on my wall this morning. I I, I fill a sermon series coming on on joy. And you know, David said, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. God has called us to be Joyful. Amen? And joy is not controlled by outside circumstances, but rather what's happening on the inside. And God called us to joy. And if you're not experiencing joy as a believer in Jesus Christ, something's come between you and God. You need to find out what it is and have a God garage sale and get rid of it. And get rid of it. You may want to come to the altar and pray about that day. You may want to make your altar right there and pray about it. But make sure that you have the right perspective. Because it changes everything. Let's pray. Well God, thank you so very much for the privilege of sharing today these truths. And I first, I want to pray for my friend that might be here today, or maybe listen on the radio, and um, they've never come to terms with the fact that they have sinned against you, and that's a big deal. Help them today to understand Jesus that you died for them. And if they're willing to trust in you, if they're willing to believe in you and turn from their sins, that they can have eternal life. Just what this guy was looking for, they can have. Help them understand the importance of eternal life. And that that no matter what you ask of them as far as getting rid of the gods of their life, it's worth it. It's worth it. For my brothers and sisters today that have trusted Christ, Father, all too often, because we allow things to come in that get bigger and bigger in our lives because they get closer and closer to us. We lose our joy. And the Christian experience is just not what it used to be. We still do our stuff. We do our ministries. We go to church and a lot of things. But frankly, in our hearts, there's no joy. There's no joy. And you never intended that. You never intended that. So I pray for my brothers and sisters and I pray for me that I will keep the right perspective. And that will allow nothing in my heart And we will allow nothing in our hearts that will come between you and me, you and us. That we might enjoy the kingdom of God. Holy Spirit, we understand that preachers and and deacons and church doesn't save people. It's all in your hands. So I'm asking you to draw folks to the Savior today, to Jesus today. And we pray in your precious name. Amen.